last Sunday we had a special time and honoring mothers and also too talked about uh, Mary Magdalene in our series about moments with the Master. And in, in that uh, um, moment with the Master last Sunday, we uh, saw that how Mary was devoted to Jesus for what He had done for her. <clears throat> and, uh, and, and we saw the devotion in Mary and what that looked like. And uh, there were five things, actually, that uh, we discovered in that. That devotion is actually sorrow. It's devotion is sorrow, where Psalms 51 tells us the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. And so where does that sorrow fit in in our lives uh, you know, as well, too? Uh, it fits in when you feel so bad for your sin that you are broken over it. It fits in when you cry before God because of your sins or your apathy. It fits in when you feel a crushing weight on your chest for the lostness of the people all around you. It fits in when you pray in passion for God to forgive you and to use you. It also fits in when you humble yourself before God and cry out in sorrow for how you've ignored Him. The sorrow is devotion. Also, too, in our devotion, devotion is seeking. Devotion is seeking, as we saw in Mary's life there. Her concern for the body of Jesus just overwhelmed her recognition of the presence of Jesus. And uh, at times as well, too, our questions and our, our, our doubts and our theological rabbit trails often distract us from seeing Jesus in our midst. And so Mary still, though, was, was looking for Him, seeking after Him. And the writer of Hebrews encourages us to fix our eyes upon Jesus, and we need to seek Him through prayer and Bible reading and, in our days. And, and then we, we looked at how devotion is serving. We saw that in Mary's life. She wanted to take care of Jesus' body, and uh, service is, is a characteristic of followers of Jesus and a part of devotion to Him. Wanting to help out with what God is doing in the world should be normal for Christians. And because uh, Romans 12 also tells us uh, that giving ourselves to God, offering ourselves to whatever He wants to do for you and in you and through you is a reasonable service, reasonable act of worship. And we also saw that the devotion is seeing in Mary's life, uh, she finally saw Jesus there, and we see Jesus in many ways in our neighborhood, in our community, as well as in our own life, I trust as well. But uh, just like Mary, He has to open our eyes. We, we have to have our eyes open. And usually when we serve Jesus, we see Him at work in many ways. And that's why in uh, youth ministry, we, we saw the, the priority when I was youth pastor, priority of taking a missions trip each year for the youth group and head them on down to Mexico or wherever it was so that they could see Jesus at work, not only in the situation that was going on in people's lives there, but also, too, in their own lives as well. And God opened up their eyes uh, to what was before them and what God wanted to do in their lives as well. But when we take our faith seriously, we see God in ways we never did before. And then finally, we saw that devotion is sharing. <clears throat> Mary told the other disciples about Jesus' resurrection. And Jesus is, is just too good to keep to ourselves. We need to be sharing Jesus as well. We need to find a way to share Him with our lives. So that was what we talked about last Sunday. This Sunday we move into another moment with the Master. And uh, we, 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 uh, we look at the, this person who came to, the, came to the well ready to draw water. And just as she had been doing for years, but in, in just a few moments an hour or two maybe, she left that place changed for all eternity. Isn't that what every encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ is supposed to bring about in our lives as well? An encounter with the Savior, our lives should be changed. 
Do we not believe that when Jesus interrupts the daily routine of our lives that something great occurs? We might have our schedule, what we might be doing. We might have a plan for our, our, our lives and down the road. Jesus likes to come in and he likes to interrupt that moment and let you know, this is what I'd like to have done. This is what I'd like you to be doing. And so we need to be in tune with that. Now, that's the point of all these moments with the Master. Mary Magdalene, Nicodemus, this woman at the well we're going to be looking at today, and Zacchaeus next Sunday. All of these ought to communicate to our hearts and minds this one thought above all, that Jesus wants to break into your life and change it and transform it and, and radically altering you in such a way that you can't go home and return to life as usual so that you can't return to your routine without knowing deep in your heart that all is not well so long as Jesus is reserved for Sundays only. Jesus needs to be every day in your life. He needs to be apparent to everyone before you every day. Jesus wants to meet the spiritual needs that we have, and there is one spiritual need that stands out above them all, our need for acceptance from God. We want to be accepted by God. Every human being longs for God's acceptance. But what we have to learn is that acceptance doesn't come from performance. Acceptance from God comes from our recognition that we have nothing to offer. <laughs> it is a gift of grace, gift of grace from God to us when, when we position ourselves to receive it. That's man's greatest need, whether, whether he knows it or not. <laughs> but what about God? What is God's greatest desire? I believe we find it in this passage from John chapter 4 that we're going to be looking at. God's greatest desire is that we be, that, that He be worshipped. That He be worshipped. God needs to be worshipped in our lives. Man's chief purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And that purpose culminates in one act, the act of worship. But we have a problem when we speak of worship. Sometimes we can't quite define it. What is worship? When you try to explain worship, usually some sort of outward act is used to describe worship. Now, the Hebrew word means to bow down. And in the Bible, worship is bowing, lifting hands, praying, singing, reciting, preaching, cleansing, ordaining, and so on. But the problem is that all these things can be done in vain. It'd be done just as a rote thing going on in your life. You're in automatic mode. They can be pointless and useless and empty. Jesus said the same to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 15. And He said, you hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. According to Jesus, an act of worship uh, an act of worship is, is vain and futile when it doesn't come from the heart. And if you look at those verses of Matthew 15, you see the parallel between the phrases, honor me and worship me. Worship is essentially a way of honoring God. It means recognizing His honor and feeling the worth of it and, and ascribing it to Him in all the ways appropriate to His character. If you listen to, wor to the words of Psalm 96... Uh, in verses 6 through 8, you'll, you'll catch this. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and glory are in His sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. So, 
the Lord longs for you to worship Him, to give, to give Him the glory He is due. And we know that, that He is worthy. So how do we worship Him? How does that happen? What does that look like? And Jesus gives us the answer in John chapter 4, verse 24, in the, in the chapter we're going to be looking at. God is spirit, it says in verse 24, and His worshipers must worship Him in spirit and in truth. God is spirit and His worshipers must worship Him in spirit and in truth. So why did Jesus say that? We need to go back to the beginning here in John, uh, John chapter 4, beginning of that, and uh, get the rest of the story. Now, we'll go through it together, and you can follow along in your Bibles in John chapter 4, and beginning with verse 1, and you can follow along as we look at this story together. Now, Jesus had been in Judea, uh, but the Pharisees were uh, there were, were getting really upset that so many people were following Him. In fact, Christ's disciples were baptizing more people now than John the Baptist was. And there was some problems, I guess, about that. And they, they already had a great problem with him. It appears that at this early point in his ministry, Jesus decided to head north to Galilee. Let's move on. Not much, you know, we're not really wanted here too much. And so let's move on to another area. And the direct route to Galilee went straight through Samaria. But the Jews, as you probably know, despised the Samaritans. They were considered to be half-breeds. And there was a, a long-standing feud between the two groups. Most Jews never traveled through Samaria. Instead, they would, they would walk around it. They would skirt, skirting around Samaria. They, they, it would require as many as three extra days of travel if they did that. But the Jews were willing to spend the extra time and energy because of their hatred for the Samaritans. On top of all that, Jewish customs banned a man from talking to a woman in public. So you can see how this is all setting up here for Jesus. The Samaritans felt an equal animosity toward the Jews. When the Jews had come back from Babylonian exile to rebuild their temple, they offered to help. The Samaritans offered to help, but they were not allowed. There were many other factors involved, but it was obvious to them that they were socially unacceptable. They responded to Jewish animosity by withdrawing and creating uh, an independent subculture of their own. They, they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, and they rejected all of the Old Testament except their own version of the first five books of the law. And there really aren't any adequate words to describe the hatred that two groups felt toward one another. But it was there, and it was centuries old. Now, here's the beautiful part about all this. Jesus walks right into this hostility. <laughs> he sits down and he asks for a drink of water. The woman is stunned that Jesus would even speak to her. The woman was so surprised, uh, she says this to Jesus in verse 9, you are, a, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? <laughs> and then in verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. In verse 11, Sir, the woman, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? And then Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. 
Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And in verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, let's think this through. Some of this here that we just read. We may think that as Jesus talks to this woman that he is just following her along as, as she jumps from one thing to the next in this conversation. But the reality is that he is he's kind of baiting her as he leads her right into our discussion on worship right now. He says, I want to give you this living water, this, this wonderful life-giving, eternal, thirst-quenching water. I want to give this to you. I want you to have it. But, but what is it? If you look at verse 14 again, you can see what it is. Whoever drinks this water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So what is this water that will be a well springing up into everlasting life? Proverbs chapter 13, verse 14 says, The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life. So maybe then Jesus means that His teaching is a fountain of life. Now when thirsty people drink it, they, they revive and, and then give it to others. It's kind of what we've been talking about in the discipleship class. You learn, you, you get it, but then you also give and give to others as well about this truth, this fountain of life. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 63. He says, The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. So Jesus' teachings, His words, are the life-giving water. But the closest parallel to the image of a soul becoming a spring is found in John chapter 7. Verses 37 through 39 says, On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So here, the water that Jesus gives is the Holy Spirit. The presence of God's Spirit in your life takes away the, the frustrated soul thirst and turns you into a fountain where others can find life. But now we have the water meaning two things, <laughs> Jesus' words or His teachings and the Holy Spirit. So Both the teaching of Jesus and the Holy Spirit satisfy the longing of our hearts and make us into fountains for others. Jesus held the Word and the Spirit together. For example, in John chapter 14, verse 26, He said, But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So, the work of the Spirit of Christ is to make the Word of Christ clear and satisfying to the thirsty soul. The water offered to the Samaritan woman was the word of truth and the power of the Spirit. And when we come to Christ to drink, <laughs> what we drink is truth. It's not dry, it's not lifeless, it's not powerless truth, but truth soaked with the life-giving Spirit of God. The word of promise and the power of the Spirit are the life-giving water held out to this Samaritan woman. 
And Jesus offers this woman this water. And she, just like Jesus actually at this moment, is thirsty because he came to the well. He was thirsty, but thirsty in a different way. Jesus is thirsty from his journey into Samaria. She is thirsty from her journey through life, (laughs) but she still hasn't caught on to what Jesus is saying. She says uh, to Jesus in verse 15, Sir, give me this water. I'm tired of walking to this well anyway. She she was still thinking it was something that, uh, uh, some physical thing that she could take care of. Now, remember what Jesus is after uh, after here in in this situation. Jesus isn't just after salvation here. He's trying to create a worshiper here, a worshiper of God in spirit and in truth. He's been trying to elevate her thinking, trying to get her mind out of the physical and into the spiritual, but she isn't catching on. And sometimes you have conversations with people and they just don't catch on at times. They're like, no, okay, let me make it really clear. Jesus is trying to get her from that to the spiritual So watch what he does just out of the clear blue in verse 16. So you're following along here and catching the story, seeing the narrative happening. And then uh, she says, give me a drink of your water then. And then verse 16, he told her, go, call your husband and come back. What? (laughs) Uh, Okay. But you think, though, that Jesus might have a little more tact here because her situation wasn't really that great in the relationship mode. (laughs) Why would Jesus break open a a woman's inner life like this? Go get your husband. It's almost like, I dare you. (laughs) Yeah, he wouldn't be like that. But you you almost kind of think that sometimes. But, But why would he take this one area of her life that has caused her so much shame and bring it out into the open for all to see? Isn't that like Jesus at times in your life as well, too? Everything is good going, you know, okay, God, look at this. This is good stuff here. <laughs> Jesus is going, yeah, but what about that? <laughs> what about that? And, and he, he praises you for those things, but also, too, still wants you to grow in other areas. And here, the same thing going on as he points this out to her. We need to remember <clears throat> that concealed sin keeps us from seeing the light of Christ. If we have concealed sin in our lives, it will will keep us from seeing the light of Christ. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 20. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. I've heard it said that the quickest way to the heart is through a wound. Sin is like spiritual leprosy. It deadens your spiritual senses so that you, you rip your soul to shreds and don't even feel it. But Christ exposes her spiritual leprosy. You've had five husbands, and the man you're sleeping with now is not your husband. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 comes to mind. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. God's Word sometimes hits us right between the eyes. And Jesus is coming <laughs> right for this woman at the well to help her see what is actually her need. Jesus' words here are like a surgeon's scalpel, laying open the wound for all to see, but 
but why would he, he cut us open like that? Why would he do that? Why would he have that kind of procedure? Maybe Moses can give us some insight, or Trisha can give us some insight on that. It's a doctor's perspective about that. But he's after her heart. In, or, in, in order that we might be healed, Jesus wasn't trying to hurt the woman. He was trying to heal her. But she is like a hunted animal, evasive and hard to pin down. You probably, if you've had a pet, a dog or a cat or whatever pet, and you're trying to help that animal get better and it might have a wounded paw or whatever it is, and this is for your own good. I got a wrap. He's got to take care of it. They don't want anything to do with it because it hurts. Get, get, you know, they want to get out of there. But watch what she does after Jesus touches the most sensitive and vulnerable spot in her life. Verse 19, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. <laughs> Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. <laughs> She's trying to get a different topic going. Why, yes, as long as we are talking about my adultery, what is your stance on the issue of where people should worship? What do you think, Jesus? Do you think Jesus knew all along that the conversation would come around to this? Right to worship. She brought up the, the where of worship, but look at verses 21 through 23 to see how Jesus responds. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship, with, worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. So I hope you see a couple things here. I want you to see two things here in what Jesus says to her. First, the where of worship is not nearly so important as how we worship. You see, your mountain, my mountain, that's unimportant. The question is whether the Father is being worshipped. Who are you worshipping? God can be worshipped in vain anywhere, and He can be genuinely worshipped anywhere. So it's not a question of where, a question of how. And secondly, Jesus points out that just as the how is more important than where, so is the whom of worship. The Samaritans didn't know who or what they were worshipping. Jesus said salvation was of the Jews. You see, her knowledge of God was lacking. You can go through the motions of worship all day long, but if you don't know who you're worshiping, it's all in vain. You can come on the first Sunday here at church and have communion, but you, if you don't know who you're worshiping, it's just bread and juice. You can go down the road and find someone holding a sign, cardboard sign, give them money or help them some way, but if, if you're not doing it in the, in, you, in the, Lord, in the Lord's name or, or you don't know God in that way, but you're just doing it to be kind, trying to worship something. Yeah, are you, who are you worship, worshiping in that? <laughs> we worship God in our service. We worship God in our sharing. We worship God with our lives. But if we don't know who we're worshiping, then all these things are kind of done in vain. Come to church. Okay, why? <laughs> why do you come to church? Who are you worshiping? You can go through all the motions all day long, but if you don't know who you're worshiping, it's all in vain. So how and whom are crucial 
Worship must be vital and real in the heart, and worship must, be, must rest on a, on a true perception of God. If we worship God with a, a, a twisted perception, then we have a, a, a situation in our, in our hands that is, is deadly. <laughs> we think we know who we're worshiping and then realize from God's Word or a, a, a well-versed Christian coming alongside and saying, hey, uh, <laughs> you know what you're doing here? We get hit with the truth and we're going, whoa, wait, I thought I was worshiping God. This isn't God. Oh, my. And we get, so we can get sidetracked if we don't have the right perception of God in our worship. There must be spirit and there must be truth, which corresponds to the how and whom of worship. So worshiping in spirit is the opposite of just worshiping in external ways. It's the opposite of empty traditionalism. Worshiping in truth is the opposite of worship based on an inadequate view of God. Worship must have heart as well as head. It must engage emotions as well as thought. So, what happens here? Watch in verses 25 and 26, as well as verses 28 through 30. It says, The woman said, I know that Messiah, that Messiah called Christ is coming. When He comes, He will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am He. Then leaving her water jar, in verse 28, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Something beautiful happened that day. A true worshiper was created. Your heart longs for more than what you settle for in this life. It's that heart cry for abundant life. Not just life, but abundant life. That heart cry for something real and genuine. But we suppress it and we drown it out. You see, God creates within the heart of every man and woman that emptiness that can't be filled with new stuff. <laughs> we try. We try to get the latest and greatest thing, but it's only temporary. It doesn't last. It can't be filled with religion. It can't be filled with the church. It can't be filled with your Bible, actually, and, and with your prayers, not with anything you do or try or become. It's thirsting, not for a drink from those wells of water that only satisfy for a short while. It's thirsting for a drink from the living water, the soul-satisfying Word of God, empowered by the life-giving Spirit of God. The woman at the well found that, that water that day. She tasted of it, quenched her thirst from the well that never runs dry until her cup overflowed into the supreme act of worship right there in front of Jesus. But what does it all mean for you? What does it all mean for me? Let's see if I can sum it up in just a few quick thoughts here for us. The change that we see in this person, the woman at the well who had a moment with the Master. I think one thing we can remember from this is that God desires your worship. God desires your worship. He created you for that purpose and none other. Have you ever stopped to think why you are here? Why you exist? Have you ever wondered why you have been kept alive? Why? 
What, what is the purpose? All the reasons we usually come up with are usually self-centered. You need to see the bigger picture this morning. God gave you life and He sustains your life for one supreme purpose, to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. That's why you exist. I think another thing we can look at here and remember is that worship begins in salvation. Worship begins in salvation. You think about it, this woman had been a, a worshiper for a long time, but Jesus comes along and tells her that her worship is all wrong. She didn't even know the Father. Her spirit had never been made alive by the Holy Spirit, but on that day long ago, she heard the life-giving words of Christ and was drawn by the Spirit of Christ. Her sins were exposed, and then she realized that the man she was speaking to was Jesus, the Messiah. She drank that living water. The word of truth and the power of the Spirit was and was saved that day. She left that place having worshipped at the feet of Jesus. I think another thing we can see here as well, too, is that worship has to do with real life. Worship has to do with real life. For some reason, we have come to believe that worship is what happens in church, during church, right here. We think it's about having the right music, preaching, and feeling something. Those things can be involved in worship, but you can do all this stuff and never worship because your heart can be so far from God. Worship has to do with real life. It's not a mystical interlude in a week of, of, of reality. You don't come on a Sunday and go, whew, okay, that was great, back to real life. No, it's all of life for you. It's not something that just happens on Sundays. It's not something that can be produced or manufactured. You come to church, you prepare yourself to meet with God, but then prepare yourself all week long <laughs> to worship Him. Worship has to do with adultery and hunger and racial conflict. It happened here by a, by a well in those same things. And as a matter of fact, most of the worshiping you, you, you do ought to happen outside of this place here. That will revolutionize our church services, <laughs> definitely. When, when you leave this place and begin to encounter Christ on a daily basis, you'll begin to enjoy moments of personal worship all through the week. Instead of saving up for just one day here today, if you do that for just a day for an hour, you're lacking. <laughs> do it all week long. And when you encounter Christ on a daily basis, You'll worship personally Monday through Saturday. Then when we come together, we'll experience a whole new level of corporate worship on Sunday. You'll be living Jesus through the week. It'll culminate to a day like this. I think one other thing that we can learn from here as well, too, is worship must engage your heart as well as your head, and vice versa. You see, I believe there needs to be a balance of engaging our emotions as well as our intellect in worship. If you're more inclined to engage your heart and, 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 and uh, emotions in worship, discover how you can involve your head and intellect in worship as well, too. Sometimes we're all about feelings and emotions, but you've got to get your head on straight with this as well, too, because we can be carried away with all that stuff. Check out some of those hymns that might 
be low on your musical taste, <laughs> but have a high level of doctrine and truth. Be, be versed in God's Word so you know who you're worshiping. <laughs> if you're more liable to engage your head and intellect in worship, I mean, that's who you are, that's how you work, you love the doctrine and stand on the Word, but not so much emotion comes through, pretty stoic in that way, then maybe you can find ways to involve your heart and emotions. Don't become a person who is afraid to show any emotion, afraid to break out in praise in response to God's goodness. Don't be afraid to respond with a holy, a holy hush when God moves in our presence. Don't be afraid to, to weep when your heart is broken. True worship must include inward feelings that reflect the worth of God's glory. So there's a balance. Today, you and I sit at the well with Jesus, and that's, that same penetrating look comes to us as Jesus is searching our hearts. Are you a genuine worshiper? God wants to make you one this morning through a fresh encounter with Him. Are you thirsting for a drink from that living water? Does it sound good to you? Have you ever been saved? Maybe today you, you know Jesus as your Savior, and You've been going through all the outward emotion, uh, emotions of worship, but your heart has been far from Christ. Will you return this morning? Will you come back to Him? Jesus confronts you and wants, you, wants to know why you've been so distant, why you've been so far from Him when He's right there in your very presence. He's with us today, right there, sitting right next to you saying, what's up? Don't you want to worship me, truth and in spirit, all day long, every day? Will you give him your heart today, responding to his great desire for worship, and all the while satisfying your heart's longing for him as well? A hymn comes to mind. I won't sing it to you, but I'll read the words to it. All my life long I had panted for a drop from some cool spring that I hoped would quench the burning of the thirst I felt within. Oh, I can't help it. Hallelujah, I have found Him who my soul so long has craved. Jesus satisfies my longings. Through His life I now am saved. And then the verse 2, or one of the other verses says, Well of water ever springing, Bread of life, so rich and free, untold wealth that never faileth, my Redeemer is to me. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We're going to have the worship team come on up. They're going to lead us in some uh, last few songs here. If you feel the Spirit tugging on your heart about worshiping Him in spirit and in truth, respond. Respond. If you're the intellectual person that has no emotions in, in, in worship time, and I'm not just talking about singing, but when you hear of a lost person who needs Jesus, and you haven't wept over that person, think about how that can work in your life in, in worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Don't leave one without the other. You need them both together. And we need to be able to have that to be those true worshipers of God. As we sing these last couple songs, uh, think about those things. 
And let the Holy Spirit again just tap you on the shoulder about that. Is there some work that needs to be done between you and God? Respond in obedience if there is. <laughs> However you want to do that here at the altar or right there where you're at. But just know that God is with us and He, he, wants, he wants that deep relationship with you. And He wants to have you grow in Christ or discover Christ for the first time. Maybe you've been worshiping something and you didn't realize, oh, I guess this is Jesus. Okay, what is He like? Come to Him for the first time today. Today is the day of salvation for you if you have not known Jesus as your Savior. But regardless, whatever it might be for you, however the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, respond in obedience. Just be obedient to God and what He has for you today.